You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. Tony Wagner is a former high school teacher, principal, teacher educator, and school coach. For three decades, he's been an advocate for deeper learning for all students. His books, Change Leadership, Global Achievement Gap, Creating Innovators, and Most Likely to Succeed, sounded the alarm bell that the new economy requires new experiences and outcomes. In his new memoir, Learning by Heart, Dr. Wagner recounts his own struggles with traditional education and his lessons learned from the last two decades of work exploring the innovation economy. Let's listen in as Tony and Tom recall their work together and talk about the path forward. Hey, Tony Wagner, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Oh, Tom, it's great to hear your voice, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. Uh, where and how are you weathering the lockdown? Uh, weathering would be the operative word. I'm in rural New Hampshire on Squam Lake, looking at a solid sheet of ice on the lake that remains, and uh, bare ground with patches of snow here and there, but we're doing just fine. You know, we're we're making time to Zoom or FaceTime with friends and family. We have a schedule where we do some work, you know, regularly. We take walks every day, so we're doing just great things. Tony, um, we've got a lot of history, and I want to let our our listeners in on just a little bit of that. So I'm going to go in the Wayback Machine to 1994. I was a first-year superintendent uh, here in the Seattle area, and Rudy Crew was the Tacoma superintendent. And early in the morning, I used to shoot across the the tide flats of uh, Tacoma and have coffee with Rudy, and he he would explain to me what uh, I should be doing. And first on his list was uh, that I he told me to send our principals to Tony Wagner's training program at Harvard. <laughs> it wasn't our, mine. I was kind of I did cameo appearances here or there. <laughs> Uh, he, he said, "You got it. You got it. You got to get your principals to meet Tony Wagner." And my, oh my. principals came back and said, "There's this guy that sounds kind of like you, but we understand him." <laughs> and, well, and you did that, start you, with a serious disability, Tom, coming from an engineering background. <laughs> I was lucky. I was I, a recovering high school English teacher. Well, the, but the interesting thing is, in like on some dimensions, I was the best prepared superintendent ever. Uh, on most dimensions, I was completely unprepared, and so I invited you to become our our district coach. Uh, do, do you remember what you did and and how you did it for us? The sort of routine uh, that we set clearly. up. Clearly, I mean, maybe you have a me- better memory than I. My main recollection is that I was, I think, a sounding board for you. Um, yeah. And there's something that you needed where you could speak candidly to me and, and express your kinds of concerns. But I also spent a lot of time listening in the schools, listening to the principals right. and the students, and kind of trying to be a, an intermediary, if you will, uh, yeah. and give you a sense of what I was hearing, what the challenges were. The other thing I think that you utilized me for is helping principals and teachers understand the need for change. Uh, that my attempts to explain to folks about uh, this changing world uh, and what it means for kids, I think, was something that I was able to do because I had the credibility of having been a high school teacher. And so they they heard me in a different way, perhaps, 
And then finally, I think uh, we talked a lot about, and you did a great deal of public engagement, focus groups and community meetings, helping the community understand the need for change. So uh, I, I did. I love the fact that you would go visit schools and talk to principals and kids, and you would come and meet with our leadership team. Do you, you remember that our leadership team used to meet in the mall? We we, I had, do we, take it, we took over a vacant store and we moved all of our customer-facing functions to the mall, and we used to meet there. And you would come and sort of describe what you had seen and what felt like it was going in the right direction and uh, what we needed to be thinking about. It just it was such a useful uh, dialogue, and I, I like the way you described um, that that role of the intermediary. I think it was uh, as as valuable for our our teachers uh, and leaders as it was for uh, the leadership team. No, thank you. It was you, a pleasure because I, I I think you were you were such a visionary superintendent, willing to try new things, uh, really uh, open to understanding more deeply how to do your job well. And that's not something that's common. I think a lot of superintendents, like senior managers in many, many businesses, think they got to be where they are because they're somewhat smarter than other people and don't necessarily have to listen. Have you done coaching of that sort in the last 20 years? It, it seems like you that's, that's been a thread for you, right? Oh, I, d I did quite a bit of it. Um, yours was the first district, but I had many after that. And as you know, when I was involved with the Gates projects that, that you helped to initiate, I did a great deal of coaching. Right. And then most recently, out of the blue, I got a call from one of the principals with whom we worked when we were in the Gates project, who is now superintendent at North Shore. And I've become her and her leadership team's coach as they think about how to really transform uh, learning in the school district and start a new high school. And it's been a joy to reconnect, especially with, with a, a superintendent so experienced and so visionary in her understanding of what needs to change. Tony, you have a, a new memoir out. It's called Learning by Heart. Um, we're going to come back and talk about that. But um, in in the book, you talk about your own educational experience and um, as you think about elementary and middle school it sounds like traditional education didn't work very well for you <laughs> well that's kind of an understatement Tom I hated school uh, you know from day one not just some days some subjects but pretty much the whole package <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, I loved wandering the farm where I grew up, and I did a lot of learning there and in summer camp, but uh, class, classroom learning didn't work for me. I was asked uh, not to return to the middle school where I was attending eighth grade for, <laughs> for high school. I uh, dropped out of uh, a very second-rate boarding school in my senior year because of an encounter with an English teacher, which we could talk about, and then dropped promptly after that out of two different colleges before graduating from a small experimental college that in many ways opened incredible doors for me as a learner and enabled me to become a teacher because I'd finally graduated from somewhere. Right. So what, so what was it? I think that was called Friends World Institute, right? Friends World Institute. Became what, friends what was college. It? Yes. What was? You know, it, it was interesting. Um, it, it was uh, founded by a group of Quakers who who hired this visionary educator by the name of Morris Mitchell, who was really 
had, had studied with and had been influenced by John Dewey. So for Mitchell, it was all about hands-on learning. So he believed we, we learned best um, by engaging and doing what he called study tours, study trips. And he, his vision was to really educate agents of social change. Now, keep in mind, this is 1965, 66. Oh. And so he w- his vision was to create centers all over the world, seven of them, and have students move from their home center to each of the others and then come back to their final home center for the last semester of their senior year and write a senior thesis. Now, the vision was oh. grandiose. Uh, but the experience that I had as a student there where there were no formal classes, no grades, uh, and there were seminars and where we really studied social problems. And I actually ended up living for a year and studying in Mexico. And it was an incredibly transformative set of experiences. The major academic requirement was that we keep a journal about all of our learning. We had an academic advisor, and he would sit down with us and regularly and talk about what we're learning, talk about what was our journal, and then award credits on the basis of what we had written about what our learning in our journal. So it was quite quite ahead of its time, but it enabled me to be more independent, to take initiative, to pursue the subjects and topics uh, that really interested me most deeply, and uh, along the way encountered some extraordinary people who made a real difference in my life. That um, that's really powerful, and it's it's interesting, Tony. Before we started recording, I I mentioned that I, I had sort of rediscovered. Um, this idea of, of educating for social change, for, for social good. And, um, I think that's such, that was, that was so vibrant in the sixties. And I, I sense a resurgence of that, that ethic, that, uh, ethos today. Wonder if you'd see that as well. I do. You know, it began when I, uh, began seeing it when I interviewed young people for my 2012 book, Creating Innovators. And all of those young people in my interviews, some from privilege, some from poverty, equal number of young men and women, they all want to make a difference. They all want to solve real problems. And they're impatient with an education system that doesn't give them the tools and the opportunities that they seek. You you were a teacher and, uh, and a school head, I'd love just a, a reflection on your time leading schools. What what was a a, a big takeaway or two <laughs> from attempts at Oh, uh, you would have to go straight to that one. That was one of the biggest well, disasters a, of my adult life. But that's a good story. Uh, for some, I mean, I tell it with a great deal of pain. Uh, the short version of the story is I was 33 years old. I had 10 years of experience teaching in both public and independent schools. And I thought I was ready to be a school leader. I knew how to transform my classroom, and so, by gosh, I was going to go transform a school and create a model school. And so I became head of this very small, precious little K-8 through independent school in Cambridge, Quaker School, called uh, Cambridge Friends. And, you know, there was the challenge was, on the surface, the, the, all the trustees, all the teachers thought this was the most wonderful school that had ever been created on the earth. But beneath that, 
that surface, that veneer, uh, I heard disgruntled parents saying, you know, it's not academically rigorous enough. Uh, it's too permissive with behaviors and so on. And I began to see with my own eyes that, you know, those eighth graders were not going to be ready for ninth grade at a school like Sidwell Friends where I had previously taught. And that there were many kids who seemed to me uh, being far too indulged by by adults in terms of their misbehaviors. But I didn't know how to, to do anything, Tom. You know, I'd taken this ridiculous uh, seminar for new heads of schools, and, and the psychologist there talked to us about his window shade theory of leadership. He said, you know, you as a leader, you've got to control of the window shade. You let it up a little, and you've got to give a little more power to the people. You, you bring it back down, and you take it all back. He said, it's all about time where you put your window shade. It's terrible advice. Oh, God, it was awful. Just, um, it was terrible. So I was a disaster as a head. I lasted a year and a quarter. That was it. Well, what, like, what do you take away from that? I, 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 the good, the good news is that it, it creates a sense of humility about the job, right? Oh, absolutely. First of all, you know, personally, uh, you know, I was hubristic. Uh, I had an over, I had an exaggerated sense of, of what I could do. I wasn't grounded. You know, I didn't understand that leadership is is very different than, you know, being a good teacher, which I was. I was a good teacher. But being a good leader is completely different. Uh, So that's the first point, under really understanding that there is is something to to master about leadership. Secondly, and and it was kind of, it foreshadowed later work that I learned uh, about from other, other leaders, I had a sense that something needed to change. I had no idea how to frame the conversation to bring others in. You know, I had, I had the solution. We had more, we're going to need, we're going to have more rigor, better discipline, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, they didn't see that there was a problem. And, yeah. and then I, I want to just, yeah. Well, I want to under, I want to underscore that. I, I think that is the, today, the first job of a school head or a system head is to, lead that faculty conversation, that community conversation. The new work is really building a set of temporary agreements around um, a a new context. And so I I think this being a conversation leader and agreement facilitator might be the the first job today. Does that sound right? I I just couldn't agree more. Um, And it, it became most clear to me when I was doing my doctorate at Harvard and I wanted to study schools in the process of change, and they hung out for a year and a half in three completely different kinds of high schools trying to change. And the core message that I came back with is that teachers were being asked to change and had no idea why. You know, we in education have an affliction called answeritis. We start with solutions to problems most people don't see, answers to questions most people haven't had a chance to ask. And so I agree with you. The job of a leader is to facilitate a conversation, but also I think to, as Ron Heifetz talked about in his book, Leadership Without Easy Answers, get on the balcony and help people see the bigger picture and frame the bigger questions or the bigger challenges without having to believe you have to answer them. That's, you know, our job is to empower the educators to find new solutions to new problems. It's what Ron Huppets calls an adaptive challenge. It's not a technical yep. challenge. I 
I, I'm glad you mentioned Ron, and I do I do want to underscore adaptive challenge. Um, th this is really important for teachers and principals that we are experiencing in society a set of adaptive challenges, things we have never experienced before for which there are no uh, easy answers. And I, I think the idea of inviting kids into adaptive challenges is really uh, it's challenging, right? It, it, uh, it requires a sense of humility to say, listen, I don't know the answer to this. And in fact, nobody knows the answer to this, but here's how we might approach this problem together. Um, and, and openness to adaptive leadership, uh, I think is really critical. I think both you and, and Ron, uh, have made a real contribution over the last 30 years in that space. Well, I learned it the hard way, I think, beginning with that chemistry so, friends experience years ago. All right. I, a quick fast forward. So in 1999, I, I give you a call and say, hey, um, Bill and Melinda have invited me to uh, to help them start this foundation. And Bill told me to go visit schools for six months and tell them what to do. Can you help me line up some school visits? Um, so that – that, that fall was kind of Tom and Tony's wonderful adventure, right? We, we visited, um, I don't know, probably hundreds of schools. You introduced me to um, Ted Sizer and Debbie Meyer and to the, all the innovators in, in Boston, Linda, Linda Nathan. We visited the, the Met and uh, met Dennis Lipke. Uh, we, we visited New York and um, visited uh, what was the first multiplex that uh, Julia Richmond and Julia Richmond, right? Yep. Um, that was the the <laughs> was the steepest and most wonderful learning curve uh, of my <laughs> life. Is that six months uh, and to be oh, able it was to so much fun. It was exciting for me too. Yeah. And just to imagine what um, what we were learning and seeing and and what and how that could be brought to scale was really a rich and vital time, wasn't it? Oh, it was incredible. I mean, it was a very heady time, too, because, you know, you had access to resources. And so all of these schools that you mentioned, these leaders, had basically been scrounging and had been on the fringe for so long. And for for them to finally uh, begin to see the possibility of of, of of real resources and possibilities for scale up, and and an acknowledgement and an appreciation of their their substantial intellectual contributions. I mean, they were really the first innovators in education, the ones you just talked about, and made such a difference for so many of us today. And they're largely forgotten now, but all of those people made a real difference, and then you really tried to bring their ideas into the public space in a very significant way. Well, thanks for all those intros. It, it was uh, life-changing, and I, I like to think that it um, it helped put the sector on a, on a slightly different trajectory. And in some respects, we're, it, it's interesting to note that right at the same time, um, the standards-based movement was turning into federal policy and, and just a year later turned into No Child Left Behind. And so you, you had these networks of progressive schools being launched and you had
standards assessment and accountability, this equity-seeking effort and people like me thinking that these things could live um, harmoniously. And I guess with 20 years of hindsight, we we see that uh, accountability efforts kind of swamped the, the new school development efforts uh, to, to some extent. Um, they, those ideas didn't live as harmoniously as we once thought. You have you have thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I do because I I think you know we're always in hindsight we're always very critical of NCLB, but it came about for a reason, and the reason was that we as educators had fallen down. We had not paid sufficient attention to the achievement gap. We had not disaggregated data, and so to some extent we brought this on ourselves. And I think if our new efforts now to reimagine education for the 21st century are to succeed, we are going to have to create what I call accountability 2.0. We're going to have to create an accountability system that does, in fact, hold us accountable for what matters most. That's a button and a bumper sticker I want every educator to have. Hold me accountable for what matters most. So we're going to have to design a different kind of system that in a sense really powerful learning and teaching, but at the same time uses data and other forms of evidence, qualitative evidence, uh, examples of student work, to, to make sure that we are in fact on the track and, and never leave any kid behind again. Thank you for that. Uh, let's put a pin in that and come back and do another podcast on that topic. you agree? Love to. All right. Uh, I want to do a quick lightning round and just highlight some of the great books that um, that you've written. Um, in the 90s, you wrote a book called How Schools Change, which was kind of an ethnographic look at three communities. Uh, a great second edition came out in 2002. And speaking of Ted Sizer, he wrote the foreword to that. In, in a sense or two, why was that book important to you? Well, it was actually based on my dissertation at Harvard, and I had to really fight to do a qualitative research dissertation. And it really did, did uh, as I said, encapsulate the essence of the learning that teachers were being asked to change and didn't know why. And that really yeah. set me on a course. of How do I, right. as, a, 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 you know, an educator, help people understand why change? Hey listeners, it's your host Jessica. I wanted to just take a quick break to share an important resource with you. Recently, our team launched the Getting Through Microsite to support educators, leaders, and families on the path forward during this unprecedented and uncertain time. There's something there for everyone, whether you're just getting started with your transition to distance learning or you've had plans in place for a while and now have the opportunity to share your work and guidance with others. We hope this gives you a place for your voice and an opportunity to learn. We know we will get through this together. Check it out at gettingsmart.com slash getting through. Okay, now back to the show. Um, now, now we're going to move into a period where you had uh, really good forwards to your book, because um, I, I wrote the forward for the next few books. Uh, <laughs> Making the Grade uh, came out in, I think, 2002, and I I think the real focus there was you, you talked about um, school being obsolete and must be reinvented. I, I really, yeah. I loved that sentiment because it, it didn't blame teachers. It explained that we've inherited this 
obsolete system that wasn't delivering what kids needed, right? Well, that's right, because the message then, as you'll recall, about the standards movement, was that schools were failing and needed reforming. And, right. of course, that was a total teacher blame. And so I was trying to counter that message with a different one, which is, you yeah. know, no, some schools are failing, but, in fact, the system is obsolete and doesn't yeah. need reforming. It needs reinventing or reimagining. And my favorite motto of the era was no shame, no blame, and no excuses. Um, next book was Changed Leadership. You, you get into more, I think both you and, and Michael Fullan were, were moving into this space of thinking um, systematically, systemically, uh, reframing the problem, laying out a new set of skills. What, what else do you remember about Changed Leadership? Well, first of all, it came about because of a, of a great grant that that um, you guys gave us at the foundation, at the Gates Foundation, to create this change leadership group, which brought together um, Bob Keegan and myself as co-directors, plus uh, Jude Garnier and Lisa Leahy and uh, later others. And we really had the luxury of trying to study change and change leadership and try to understand it and then work actively with school districts, teams of school districts led by superintendents in the process of change. And and so learn from that, what is the methodology? And I remember you, vividly, Tom, the conversation you and I had said, look, you know, you got a problem in business. You can call a Bain. You can call a McKenzie. Right. You know, you can call all of these folks. But who do you call if you're an education leader and you're having a problem with educational change? There was no one. So the Gates Foundation grant enabled us, I think, to develop, uh, first of all, a theory and a methodology and then case studies. And that's what really influenced that book. And it wasn't just written by me. It was written by me as well as all of my colleagues. And it was the result of about eight years of learning that the foundation granted uh, uh, enabled us to achieve. I forgot uh, about that the change leadership group that was behind that. That's um, that's great. That was uh, that was important work. Um, a couple years later, you, you wrote what really turned out to be your your breakout book called uh, Global Achievement Gap. What was that about? Well, you know, I read Thomas Friedman's uh, The World Is Flat. Was it 2004, 2005? Because my wife told me to. She made me read it. She said, you have to read this book. And and I did. And I said, oh, my God, this is going to be an incredibly different world, and we need to understand it. So that was one sort of larger influence. But then the other influence, I was sitting next to this business guy. I got upgraded to first class because I've been traveling so much, and I had the mileage. And his name was Clay Parker. I sat next to him, and we started chatting. Turned out he was the CEO of a company that made the machines that made microchips. I mean, about as technical as and STEMI as you can get, right? And so I said, okay, here's an interesting opportunity. It's a new world. He's the kind of guy that Tom Friedman would have written about. I'm going to interview him. Say, okay, so Clay, tell me, when you go to hire somebody for your company, uh, what's the first thing you look for? And, and this guy was trained as an engineer, and I thought, you know, we'll get all this advanced math stuff and all that. And he said, well, the first thing I look for is someone who knows how to ask good questions. And I went, whoa! <laughs> As a recovering high school English teacher, that was music to my ears. He, and he, I asked him to explain. He said, well, you see, you have to understand that to solve a 
to identify the right problem. It's not about problem solving, he said. It's about problem identification. And to identify the right problem, you have to know how to ask good questions. You have to ask the right questions. So I said, okay, now, what's the second thing? And he said, and I'm waiting now for the technical stuff, the, you know, the science math stuff. He said, well, the second thing is, I want, I want someone who, who can look me in the eye and engage in a thoughtful conversation. And I'm going, oh, my God, this is, this is about as technical as you can get it as a business. And he's telling me this stuff that, as an English teacher, I tried to do. And I said, well, why is that, Clay? He said, well, look, it doesn't do any good if you know how to ask good questions, but you can't engage others. You can't lead a team. You can't get things done unless you know how to engage others. He said, most engineers, you know, look at their feet when they talk to you. <laughs> so to me, they, it set me out on a kind of, journey, exploration, said, all right, maybe he's a one-off, but let's go find out. So what I did, Tom, was I interviewed a wide variety of executives, and it took me a couple of years to get access, but from literally from Apple to Unilever to senior leaders in the U.S. military, uh, and asked them, what are the skills that matter most, and what are the gaps? And I got the same kinds of consistent findings that Clay Parker described. I ended up calling them the seven survival skills. And then I compared that with what I was seeing in some of our very best schools and advanced placement programs and classes. What were they teaching? And that was the global achievement gap. It was the gap between the new skills all kids were going to need, not just for work, but also for learning and citizenship, versus what was being taught and tested even in our very best schools. You followed that up with creating innovators, which um, which further elaborated on those skills that um, I, I think was written for a, a bit more of a general audience, parents included. Is that fair? Oh, yeah. Although Global Achievement yeah. Gap also had a, a, a wide following from, from parents. What, what happened, Tom, is I kept talking to these leaders, and I still had the assumption we were in a knowledge economy. And I began to realize, well, Peter Drucker coined that term in 1969, and this was now 2010. And I suddenly realized it wasn't the knowledge economy anymore. It was the innovation era. And what, what do we have to do beyond the seven survival skills to prepare all kids to be innovators, to graduate all kids from high school innovation ready, not right. college ready? And so this time what I did, as you know, is I interviewed a wide variety of young people, all of whom were in their 20s, some from privilege, some from poverty, some, some equal number of men and women, but all of them were in some way identified as creative problem solvers. Some were social entrepreneurs. Some were in, in tech. I talked to the guy who led the team that developed the first iPhone. And every, so everything in between. There were artists and so on. And I tried to understand what had been the forces that had shaped their lives. And, you know, I interviewed all of their parents and asked them about their parenting and what was different. And I, I also, of course, asked them most about their, their education. And that's one of the first important things I learned was that while some of these kids had gone to leading schools, Harvard, Stanford, MIT, Carnegie Mellon specifically, they all told me they had learned to become innovators in spite of their schooling, not because of it. But they could all name at least one teacher who made a real difference in their lives, just as you were telling me earlier about the teacher that made the greatest difference in the lives of your daughter, Carolyn. And so I interviewed all of those teachers, and I discovered they were all outlier teachers, teaching in ways that were fundamentally 
different from their colleagues, but very similar to one another and similar to all those teachers whom we saw in that first great, great road trip we took together in 1999. So that was the essence of that book. How do we prepare all kids to be innovation ready? Yeah, I I love uh, the formula that you laid out was play, passion, and purpose, the forces yeah. that drive young innovators as a beautiful Thank summary. Um, in 2015, you wrote a book with Ted Dintersmith around uh, a movie called Most Likely to Succeed. Uh, what was fun about that project? Well, it was great fun working with Ted on the movie. Uh, it, it was an extraordinary uh, adventure to, to to make a movie that could help a large audience understand why change parents, teachers, community members. Uh, and with Ted, the effort was to really begin to get more specific. If the problem is preparing all kids for the innovation era, what do we need to change in the curriculum? And, and, and math, for example. I mean, you know, I was an English teacher, but uh, Ted had a PhD in mathematical modeling. And so right. he was, had much more credibility for uh, sort of critic, critiquing the math curriculum than I. So we kind of divvied up the the, 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 um, the ground, so to speak, and, and uh, wrote from our perspectives and our experiences about how do we specifically reimagine, particularly the high school curriculum. And so that that was uh, the real focus of that book. It was an extension of creating innovators in some respects. And I, I'll just give our friend Larry Rosenstock a plug. The, the movie uh, features High Tech High extensively and the, the really powerful learning experiences that young people have there. And I'll give a plug right back because you and I went to visit uh, High Tech High we very, did. very early on. And you said, oh, my well, God, how do we have we, more of we, these? We visited <laughs> when uh, there was a an abandoned naval base and a gutted uh, warehouse and a guy who promised that the only textbook would be Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jerry Diamond. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, let's, Actually, you let's know, there's a funny story, a backstory to that. When when there were a group of kids who uh, screened um, the, the movie, most likely, to succeed in a school district, uh, and then uh, they were in live time talking to high-tech high kids about the movie and about their experiences in the school. And so these conventional high school kids said, and they were, they were in Salt Lake City, I think. I was in the audience, and I said, to ask the high-tech high kids, do you really not have any textbooks at all? And the kids said, oh, yeah, we have a few. We use them as doorstops. <laughs> oh, that's great. That sounds like Larry. Um, yeah. All right. The reason for the call, uh, Tony, is that you just released a memoir. It's called Learning by Heart. Um, after this great string of books that we've just uh, talked about, was it harder or easier to write a memoir? It was both. It, it was easier in the sense that I wasn't trying to have to construct a new argument or do new research. Um you know, I had no new arguments to make, but I had stories to tell. And I was, in a sense, trying to simply answer the question of how did I become, in my own world, an innovator. And so that was the easy part. Uh, the hard part was the emotional, uh, revisiting right. traumatic experiences. And I don't mean personal family experiences. I mean traumatic school experiences. Um, you know, I, I, I was very lucky. I started collecting papers 
that I had written and things that I'd done, you know, since the age of 14. And I had journals. I had 10 years of teaching journals. I had all of my journals from Friends World College. I had every paper I'd ever written that I thought was any of any interest. Uh, and so I, I had this treasure trove of material. I had two unpublished manuscripts. I'd actually started a, writing a book, Tom, in 1976 called Educating for Character, based on my teachers, wow. my teaching experiences. Uh, Latona then, four years later, published a book by the same title, Educating for Character. And then I'd also written three drafts of a novel in my first year of my doctoral program because I was so bored at Harvard. And so I had all of that material. And I had all my life, Tom, uh, we share a passion, you and I. I know yours is poetry. Mine has always been fiction. I've, I've, I've loved reading fiction. And I began life wanting to be a novelist. I wrote three, I wrote, uh, um, starting when I was 19, I actually started writing a coming of age novel. I wrote eight pages of it. The novel I finished in my first year of my doctoral program. And I realized I'm not a novelist, but I do love using the tools of, uh, in the novelist toolbox, uh, storytelling, uh, character development, dialogue and, and description. And so for me, it was pure joy to be able to at last kind of, in a sense, develop another side of my writing interests and writing abilities. Sounds like a party for an English teacher. <laughs> oh, it was fabulous. It was really fun. I have to say, though, I had great fun. Uh, the longest version of the story is I, I'd written a book proposal some four or five years ago based on this and sent right. it to Scribner. And who was my, then my, uh, publisher, because they had write a first refusal, and they came back and said, really interesting material, but you basically don't know how to write a memoir. <laughs> and so my agent, Esmond Harmsworth, spent eight months finding me a coach. And she's not, she's not a ghostwriter. She didn't write a word, but Robin Dennis and I Skyped weekly. And she would go through drafts, and we'd talk through stuff. And the first thing she helped me to understand is, Basically, a memoir is not really about me. <laughs> it's about other people in my life and the influence that they've had for good or for bad. And that in, in many ways, a memoir is like a good novel. You've got a sympathetic character, hope, hopefully I'm somewhat sympathetic, who goes through a lot of trials and tribulations and maybe comes out at the end having learned something useful to somebody else. So that's, that's the story. Wow. That's, that's such a great story. I'm glad you shared that, that, uh, an English teacher who had written his entire life and a best-selling author um, needed a coach to do a, a, a memoir. What? Yep. And and just being able to take that tough advice, like, sorry, this this version sucks. You need a coach. Um, <laughs> wow. That and and to be able to turn that corner and use it productively. Um, Wow, well, that's a great, great story. I'm glad you shared that. I think that's important for uh, for our audience. The message is we learn through trial and error. That's how human yeah. beings learn. And when we're trying to, you know, put this pressure on these kids, to, they have to be perfect little kids to get into the right college and have the right job. We're doing tremendous damage. And when we create this bell curve and we say, okay, you had this many mistakes, so you get an F. We, you know, in the innovation world, you learn through trial and error. You learn through iteration. In the world of school, the more mistakes you make, the more you fail. And so, you know, 
it's the exact opposite of the real world. And so in some sense, right. I wrote the memoir showing all of my mistakes and all of their rawness, and I, there were many, uh, helping, I hope, for people to understand Learning through trial and error begins when we learn to walk, when we learn to talk, when we learn to ride a bike, we're going to fall and skin our knee, and we have to get up and keep going. I guess another big takeaway from from the book is that we really need to be thinking about leveraging student interest and strengths, uh, that those um, – Inviting young people to do real work that is important to them and their community is really what school ought to be about. Is that fair? Oh, I couldn't agree more, Tom. I mean, fundamentally, school destroys curiosity. It undermines intrinsic motivation because kids don't get to ask their own questions. They don't get to ask, uh, you know, what am I interested in? What do I want to learn? Uh, let alone pursue those. And so I had that gift at Friendswell College that saved me, literally saved me. And, yeah. you know, I, I, there are so many kids today who never experienced that. This curiosity is like a, a muscle that withers from atrophy. And so I really deeply believe the more we uh, help kids to discover themselves and the nature of their interests, but also discover themselves in the context of a connected world. You write about the new mutuality. And I think you're right, you know, to understand. The, the best way to put it, you know, it was um, Jean Piaget, the Swiss psychologist, who did the most succinct uh, definition of education I've ever heard. He said, education, the goal of education must be to overcome egocentrism in two domains. Intellectually, it means reason learning to weigh evidence. Emotionally, he said, overcoming egocentrism means learning what he called reciprocity, but what I think we would call empathy. So the challenge is to help people more fully realize themselves in the context of a world that is increasingly not just interconnected, but also interdependent, as Thomas Friedman says. Tony, we're recording this uh, at a bizarre time. Uh, I think we're peak pandemic as we as we speak or or moving into it. I, I guess as you think about the teachers and leaders listening to this, what would you invite them to think about um, as they begin to imagine? I, I know most of them are scrambling trying to provide support to kids remotely right now, but. When they have a few minutes to think about post-pandemic learning, what would you like them to to be thinking about? Well, I think you've written about some great ideas in your recent Forbes column, Tom, and, and I agree with you that as I'm talking to Michelle Reed, uh, this very dynamic superintendent at uh, North Shore, she's saying, well, what if we don't have regular classes in the fall? What would education look like? What would learning look like? It's not school-based. What about grades? Do we need grades? Uh, What about testing? Should we have it? Do we need it? Uh, In a sense, it really begins to free us to imagine if we could start from scratch to design an education system that was really created to enable the fullest development of the human capability, what would that look like? Because what's 
clear to me is that the person who's most fully developed in, in the context of being socially connected and aware and empathetic is a person who's going to be not only successful in this new world, but who's going to thrive. We talk too much about success and not enough about thriving. And uh, I, I think it'll also be, be the kind of person who's most readily able to adapt and, and to pivot and to pursue things of real interest that can lead to something more deeply fulfilling, whether it's in work or in play. Tony Wagner, it's been a treat to have you on the Getting Smart podcast. Where um, where can people find the book? Uh, it's really starting April 7th. It should be available anywhere and everywhere from Amazon to independent bookstores. Where can they find uh, you online? Oh, TonyWagner.com or at DrTonyWagner. Also, just as a quick P.S. the whole thing. One of the great joys that I had in doing the book was being able to narrate the audio version. The audiobook version is available April 7th as well. I had great fun being the narrator for that. Yeah, I want everybody to get a copy of it. It's a terrific read, and uh, I think it's really a timely, uh, timely message. So uh, uh, skip Netflix on night and uh, check out Learning by Heart. Um, Tony, thanks for joining us. Tom, it's been a joy to reconnect, and thank you so much, too, for all of the incredible work you have done that have enabled so many educators to think differently. Thank you. A big thanks to Tony for joining us on today's episode. We appreciate the journey recounted in his new memoir and his advocacy for deep learning for every student. For more on deeper learning, be sure to check out episode 232 with Virginia State Superintendent James Lane and Ted Dintersmith. Tony's co-author on Most Likely to Succeed. And before you go, don't forget to rate and review the show and make sure you're subscribed. That's it for today, listeners. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off.